electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, a tiger cub gets declawed, and it is taking down shares of some of the biggest Chinese stocks that trade here in the U.S. What is behind the selling? Could it be overdone? Plus, two social media stocks taking flight today. We'll dig into the big moves on Facebook and Twitter and bring you the trades. And later, music's new frontier, why real opportunity for NFTs may lie not in the art world, but on tour. We start off, though, with a big blow-up at Archegos. Some of uh, the shares of its biggest holdings, Bipshop, Viacom, CBS, Farfetch, Discovery, Baidu, all down again today. For more on what happened at the fund, let's get straight to Leslie Picker. Les. Hey, Melissa. This is a story that for many on Wall Street or those who watch it closely, well, they say it defies logic. Before Friday, most people had never heard of Archegos Capital Management. It's a family office managed by Bill Huang. He made headlines in 2012 after paying a multi-million dollar fine to settle an insider trading case while running Tiger Asia. But other than that, Huang flew under the radar. So you can imagine the shockwaves across Wall Street when it was revealed that his fund was going through the liquidation amounting to tens of billions of dollars. Now, he had faced a multitude of margin calls from at least six of the prime brokers that he dealt with. That caused forced selling in many of those in the media and technology names, as well as those Chinese internet names that you mentioned earlier. The Financial Times is reporting that he was able to amass positions with eight to one times leverage. And in some trades, that ratio skyrocketed to 20 to one. Now, the report cites people familiar with Huang's agreements. That type of leverage, though, is practically unheard of. It's multiples higher than even the riskiest of funds out there. And it means that even a small move downward can force significant pressure. In this case, a once-in-a-decade event, as a source called it. Regardless of the idiosyncratic nature of Archegos' demise, it's already raising questions about transparency, the siloed prime brokerage system, and regulations governing family offices. Melissa. I mean, Leslie, it seems to me that there are layers of lack of transparency that engendered this situation. Swaps in and of themselves as instruments are not transparent by nature. Family offices don't have to file anything with the Securities and Exchange Commission. And then prime brokers, as you mentioned, siloed. So the fact that he, he had margin calls at at least six prime brokers is just, it, that's just mind boggling to me. I think that's the response that most people have to what's happened today as, it, as we're starting to really unpack what happened is how is it that no one really knew the true picture of what was going on? And it all comes down to disclosure, transparency, what's required to be disclosed, what's not required to be disclosed. The fact that he's a family office, uh, if he manages outside capital, from my understanding, it's very little, uh, but mostly his own money here. And so because of that, he's subjected to different regulations uh, than your typical hedge fund which manages money for, for outside investors. And, and because of that, uh, you know, part of that is what enabled, you know, what happened last week as well as, you know, the fallout today. All right. Well, Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker tracking the story for us. I'll go to Karen first on this. 
Karen, what were your thoughts when you saw this? I mean, a lot of people were saying that this is not systemic. It's probably a one-off thing. But at the same time, uh, you got to think that, you know, if this had happened across hedge funds, that multiples were doing it, that it's possible that it could have become or could become uh, at some point in the future, if this, this happens again, something that could affect trading at large. Right. Although I, I, that's, I mean, it's mind boggling. But I think if hedge funds were involved, at least there you would see a level of disclosure necessary that could maybe prevent some of this. Right. So if if they had to disclose a giant via composition, let's just say, and you were a prime broker and you saw that and you're the another prime broker and you saw that, well, then maybe you'd have a discussion with them. It's, I, I don't know how they uh, how they got comfortable with this much leverage. And I don't know when it all started. So it certainly makes you think, all right, on the way up of Viacom, maybe it wasn't all Reddit. Maybe that was them buying and just getting bigger and bigger. I don't know. And then on the way down, I mean, I don't know how it started to unravel, whether it was the offering um, or whether it was just the valuation just got too extreme. To me, the winner, the best trader in this whole situation is Naveen Chopra, who's the CFO of Viacom. Yeah. <laughs> they sold 20 million shares at $85. They sold $900, $800 million of a convertible preferred at $85. So very good for them. The stock's now 45. I don't know if they'll use any of that money to buy the stock back. I know they wanted it for investment purposes for their streaming which is irrelevant to the story now. It's just Viacom is a vessel for crazy leverage. Once again, sort of leverage goeth before the fall. Yeah. Always. Um, Astounding. Guy, what did you make of the situation? Um, and, and do you think that, I don't want to say it's gonna, it could be replicated. Of course it could be replicated in theory unless regulations go into effect. But, uh, you know, what kind of danger do you think this could pose? Well, I mean, I, when I saw it, I'm like, there's got to be somewhat, there's got to be some systemic risk. But, you know, Karen, Tim, and Dan can speak about this much better than I. But what I'll tell you is, you know, family offices might sound quaint, like Jed Clampett and some of the crew, but they've become bigger than these hedge funds probably. A lot of these hedge funds were a decade or so ago. So if you think this is the only one that's doing things like that, think again. And by the way, you know, we talked about how could nobody know. You know, rogue traders become one of those great terms over the last decade. And I've said this, I'll say it again. Please don't at me. But the only difference between a rogue trader and a partner is the P&L. So people do know. So let's not pretend here. I mean, clearly there had to be some people know. And we're seeing firsthand um, how leverage can work for you and how leverage can work against you. And I'm totally with Karen on the best trader here. That secondary price at 85 bucks, you wonder... You know, somebody's probably sitting with that. I, I'm hard-pressed to believe that entire block was, um, was placed. So there's so many things about this. I think that spike in volatility on Friday, which, which around 3 o'clock, was really interesting. And I think the market's still way too complacent when it comes to things like this. Yeah, and of course we saw some fallout in the banks, although off the session lows um, up today at the close, Tim. And so I wonder how you think about the market cap that was taken off of, let's say, Morgan Stanley versus... The risk that the bank, the firm, actually faced from this, especially as Leslie reported earlier today, they're done liquidating the position and they don't see much more of an impact at this point. 
Yeah, and I don't think Morgan Stanley was uh, as much in the in the line of fire here. It, it, by the way, look at Morgan Stanley's chart. I'm not saying it's the same chart as, as Viacom on the way up, but Morgan Stanley's had a massive, massive run. And sometimes you don't need uh, a lot of reasons to take profits, and maybe this is enough of a reason for, for people that just said, you know what, uh, I'm a little concerned about systemic risks. And that, that's, like, that's always one of those hindsight, oh, you know what, this was a lot more clear uh, than we thought at the time. And, and that's, I think, ultimately the question here. To, to what extent uh, is leverage run amok? Is, to what extent at a time when, when liquidity is absolutely free? Uh, and then you throw in the derivative element, which are swaps. And, and in some cases, actually, you don't have to show ownership when you have more than minority positions. And, and so, you know, that's a, that's a case where I think in some cases you don't really know who are behind a lot of these trades. And in fact, part of the reason for using swaps is so, in fact, you can be anonymous. That's why big hedge funds use them, because they are trying to do this either, you know, away from the street. So, uh, look, I, I think this this. Uh, what I would call the risk factor for the last couple of days, what worries me is that the VIX at 20 with the markets near all time highs on a day when the 10 year looked like it was breaking out and the dollar uh, is up four and a half percent off those lows and doesn't show any signs of, of stopping. Yeah. Uh, Dan, it's not like it's not like swaps haven't caused the system any problems in the past at all. <laughs> it is not like that, Mel. Um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, there, there is. Something to look back to 2007 and say that we started to see some canaries in the coal mine. Um, you know, there was other activity that was kind of peaking interest that, that a lot of the, pe- the people, you know, the powers that be were saying were contained and they clearly weren't. So, you know, I think we're going to look back at this event and we're going to see a bunch of hedge funds with a lot of leverage in some positions that were really crowded and things got unwind, uh, unwound, not to their liking. And, and so when I look at what's going on in the broad market, Tim just said the S&P 500 is basically at all time highs while the NASDAQ is down about 7%. Some of the biggest components in the NASDAQ are down a lot more. When you think about Apple down 15%, the largest stock in the stock market, Amazon down um, about the same. And then you see a Zoom, which was a huge pandemic winner, down nearly 50% from its highs. You know, I just look at this price action in a lot of different names. You just mentioned Viacom went from 40 to 100 back to 40. This is not natural activity. And the notion that it's somehow contained to a small group of hedge funds and a small group of investment banks is nonsense because all of the major multi-strat hedge funds do these strategies. I don't know what happened here to cause this unwind. And then the other thing I'll just tell you is you know what Tim was just talking about, the bank stocks, you're telling me that the bank stocks are at multi-decade highs where they haven't been since the financial crisis or prior to that, and you think that this thing is contained to two small tier two banks? No way. There's just no way on whatever caused this unwind last week. So the notion that the S&P now is threatening new highs and the VIX is where it is and, and you know, at one-year lows or whatever makes no sense to me. So going back to what Guy said, the complacency here is really the thing that should be causing some alarm bells go off in the risk management corridors on Wall Street. All right, let's get more on this story with Danny Moses, the founder of Moses Ventures and of Big Short fame. He's also the co-host of the On the Tape podcast, which you want to catch. It also stars our friends Dan and Guy. Danny, great to see you. Great, great to see you guys. Um, do you agree with Dan in, in that you think people are being a little bit too complacent? I mean, from the morning on throughout the day, the, the line has been looking at this and it doesn't seem to be systemic at all and it doesn't seem to have any ripple effects and it seems to be just an Archegos capital problem. I don't know if it's uh, systemic or not. I do think there 
you could connect the dots here a little bit. I go to what really caused the margin call, so to speak. It wasn't these stocks dropping dramatically. Was it something else that caused the stocks to drop that created the margin call? I was watching the Greensill story unfold. And if you remember, Credit Suisse is on the hook for potentially billions of dollars. And I think they had an entire review go on in their system over the last couple of weeks. I think part of that review may have been, are we valuing our risk correctly across all parts of our business? And we know that they had exposure to this fund. Um, we don't know. We know it was probably at least five times leverage. We don't know the exact dollar amount, but you can imagine if they made a, the you know the call internally to say, you know what, guys, take risks down across the board. It could have caused this, and the ripple effect occurred. And there's several county parties here. I don't know if there's more copycat funds that are out there potentially. I'm just happy they can't blame short sellers this time for it. But we'll you know we'll see. I think this thing's going to play out over the next few days. Danny, it's Karen. Thanks for coming on. Let me ask you, when you think about the risk of the banks that do these kind of financings, do you think of Credit Suisse and maybe Nomura in one category of risk and maybe Morgan Stanley and Goldman and J.P. Morgan in another? Or do you think they're all taking the same kind of risk? Um, It's hard to tell. It's probably client to client. I would think that you get some of these more exotic trades on some of these um, European banks, foreign banks. The U.S. banks, I think, are very careful cosmetically to not look bad to the regulators because we all know what happens when something like like this occurs they'll be hearing now next week you know that's it's going to go on down in washington but um you know it's just amazing to me leverage is always the root of all blowups in the history of wall street it's always been leverage and to allow leverage to this fund to this particular person who had an insider trading issue back 10 10 years ago who was known to, to actually manipulate stocks lower back then when he was shorting chinese banks now what appears to be probably manipulating stocks higher, I'm sure. And there's probably other stocks that we haven't heard about that he was probably involved in. But I think to that end, I think that the risk controls just on, on the margin, no pun intended, are better at the bigger U.S. banks and some of these U.S. subsidiaries of the European and other Asian banks that are out there. If you look back to the, the time that there was the issue with CDOs and CDS, a lot of it fell on the French banks, the Spanish banks. Yes, of course, the U.S. banks were in the middle of it, but a lot of the deep leverage, a lot of the increased leverage was on the foreign banks at the time. They were just less um, regulated at the time. Hey, so, Danny, you know, you just mentioned you've been tracking the green sill situation. You and I talked about it earlier this month. Um, and then now we see the situation with leverage coming undone in a multi-strat fund. You take these two events just happening in one month here. And take me back to 2007 when you were obviously, um, you know, prominently featured in the big short here. Some of the stuff that you were digging around as far as the housing market was concerned and the esoteric products that were built on top of those loans. Could it be that these situations are just one-offs here? Because I remember 2007, and I remember when the first CDO blew up, and I remember a lot of people saying that you don't understand it, this is a one-off thing. Well, it ended up being the thing that almost took down the financial markets uh, globally here. Are, are there anything, are, are there any threads here that we can connect that you might kind of like remind you of 2007 and the lead up to 2008? Sure, I guess as it relates to Greensill in particular, there is a lot of... Um, relevant comparisons. They were offering, quote, money market type of returns for what was an insured product of uh, uh, supply chain financing. And so with that, um, they marketed $10 billion to their high net worth clients to say, hey, instead of getting, I guess, in Europe, negative returns, let's get one, two, three percent on these on these funds. Tokyo Marine was the insurance company for it. If that sounds familiar, let's think about MBIA, AMBAC and AIG insuring CDOs at the time where money market funds in the U.S. globally 
where it actually had these subprime mortgages and CDOs in them. Everybody, quote, thought they were safe, AAA rated, you know, et cetera. So that is similar, being able to have those type of products out there that are accessible to what people think is safe is the same. Um, as it relates to this particular deal with this hedge fund or this family office, I think it is somewhat contained. But again, Wall Street is the enabler that gives the leverage to the system and allows people to blow themselves up. And that will never change. It doesn't matter if it's long-term capital or, you know, or if it's this. So that is the one continuous thing that is the same. Danny, always great to get your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Danny Moses. Uh, Tim, for a brief moment in time here, there is going to be a focus on CDS, uh, excuse me, CFDs, um, as well as swaps. And so what do you think uh, would be the most constructive outcome of this in terms of, of things to look at, things to examine and take a hard look at? Well, I think I think leverage in the system is really what mm -hmm. this comes down to. And, and let's be clear, these assets that were uh, underlying the swaps are, are not difficult to value. They're easy to value. Um, they're publicly traded. They're very liquid companies for the most part, uh, as opposed to uh, esoteric CDS, CDOs on assets that were made to look AAA when, in fact, they were junk. So um, I, I, I just, again, I worry about an environment where liquidity is free. These things happen when uh, nobody's watching and when, in fact, the, the system's been pumped up with liquidity. Are there people over their skis right now? You betcha. Um, have market conditions changed in the last three weeks? Noticeably. I mean, look, look how the SPAC market's dried up. Look at a lot of the high multiple stuff. Uh, you know, Square's about to trade below 200. Look at what's happened to high multiple tech. That's the stuff investors should be worried about. I, I think we, we haven't solved derivatives uh, and, and their potential risk to capital markets overall. Um, but it's a very different world. And the bank balance sheets are very different than they were in 2008. All right. Let's get to today's market action now. The Dow closing at a new all-time high. S&P and Nasdaq both finishing in the red. But check out the Russell 2000. This really stood out, fell nearly 3%, now down nearly 5% over the past week. Of course, for the year, it is the outperformer of these indices, Guy. But what do you think of this move here, this continued move lower? It's interesting. You asked me last week, you know, about seemingly what's going on with COVID and what's happening in Europe, some of the states here in the United States. Then you heard some of the comments out of the CDC today. Maybe it's all playing into the Russell specifically and the broader market's not paying attention. But clearly the IWM has not traded well since, you know, I want to say the you know, last two and a half weeks or so. It's been a pretty much a straight line lower, albeit for a bounce. I think it's telling that story that maybe the reopen trade is not as robust as the IWM was saying a month or so ago. And oh, by the way, I throw this one as well. You know, 10-year yields back above 170. Um, I think there was a point where the Russell loved rising yields. I think we're at a point now where it doesn't. So I think those two things are playing in right now. Yeah. Dan, your take? Yeah, I do think it's interesting that the NASDAQ is also in a very um, clear downtrend. And so, you know, the Russell, because of that outperformance, Mel, that you just mentioned, is going to be a bit more volatile here. It hasn't broken that low from earlier in the month. I think you keep an eye on that here. But I do think that there's air to come out of the Russell 2000, especially when you consider the outperformance from energy and some financials there. And I'm just going to go back to financials. You can't tell me that the XLF, where it is, just a few percent from these, like, 
10-year highs or something is incorporating all the risks that we've seen in these two crises. I don't believe that they are contained to these two situations. These banks have a lot of risk in a lot of different ways. And Tim makes a point. They are not CDOs. I get that. But they are interconnected. On the other side of each one of these swaps is another big bank. We just had two small players here in this one. And I don't know why this unwound happened, but I suspect there's more to come. Before we go, I want to quickly go to Karen as the other bank shareholder on the panel. Karen, how do you counter what Dan says? Because presumably you haven't changed your positions. Right. No, I'm still long banks. I mean, normally in a day like today where we see the twos, tens get wider and, you know, rates go up, that's normally been a good thing. However, we don't know the magnitude of the losses for the capital markets groups of whomever is involved here, Goldman Sachs, JP. I mean, they're all probably involved in some way or another. But... Um, that, that is a little bit disappointing for sure that we've seen that, I don't know, every several years we see something like this. I am actually optimistic that the losses will not be significant here for the Morgan Stanleys, J.P. Morgans, Goldman Sachs of the world. Coming up, one big bank hitting the like button on Facebook. Should you do the same? We'll break down our call of the day, plus more fallout to Archegos blowing up. Chinese Internet stocks falling again today. So is it time to go bargain hunting on these names? We'll break it all down for you when Fast Money returns. You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Time for our call of the day. Shares of Facebook jumping almost 3% after Deutsche Bank upped the social media giant's price target to a new street high of $385. Analysts see revenue growth driving positive ad and e-commerce trends for Facebook. They're raising uh, first quarter as well as full year 21 estimates. Guy, what do you make of this call? Certainly had a big impact on this stock today. Yeah, 385 is a price target. I mean, you do a, you do a multiple. I mean, they're going to earn $13.5, probably even more, maybe next year. And you're talking about a company at 385 that's trading 28 times numbers, which I got to tell you something. In this environment, given their, given their growth rate um, and given their position in the market, I mean, that's downright cheap. So I don't think that's unreasonable at all. Stocks obviously got to get through that September high, which I think was 305. I said it 100 times. I'll say it again. There's absolutely... Nothing that I like about Facebook. I find it reprehensible on a number of different levels other than the stock. 
And I think the stock will continue to rally into their April earnings release. Uh, the analysts actually made the point about valuation, saying that Facebook historically trades at a 20 percent premium to the S&P 500. And right now, um, it's parity. It's the same. Uh, so, Tim, wh where do you fall on the scale for that? And, and how does this fare in the world where if rates are climbing to one eight, one nine, who knows how Facebook will fare? Well, I, I think mega cap tech is trying to figure out what to do with higher interest rates. And I, I don't think that on, on just that relationship, it, it has to be something you're automatically selling mega cap. Even if we go to a 2% tenure, I think Facebook has always traded cheap to uh, its peer group and to its growth rate. 31% Q1 uh, FX neutral ad growth is amazing. Um, why does it trade cheap? I, I think, you know, guys pointed out, I pointed out there's different reasons why uh, I think there's not a lot of confidence in, in, in this management team. There's a regulatory overhang. There may be an ESG overhang. Um, so, uh, yeah, I may sound like a broken record here, too. I, I will say the catalysts around reels and shops are two things that I think are more important on some level than this reaffirmation of ad mm -hmm. revenue, because I don't think anyone thinks ad revenue is going anywhere. Um, stock's been caught in a range since really the summer, uh, and therefore maybe these are catalysts. Maybe they, are, in fact, they are catalysts. I know you're watching at noon, Dan, as you always do the halftime report. I was hosting mm -hmm. today, um, and in the conversation about Facebook, I was, you know, talking to Joe Terranova, and he said, "What if this company were named Instagram instead? Would people be more willing to assign it a premium to the S&P 500 at this point? Why is it why is it at parity at this point? And and just think about what if the emphasis were on Instagram instead." Yeah, I think investors are focused on Instagram and they're, they're focused on, like Tim just mentioned, Reels and these products that look a lot more like the upstarts that they're competing with than what Facebook looked like seven, ten years ago when it went public, if you think about it that way. I'll just mention this, and again, sounding like a broken record, I think Tim just said that, you know, go look at Facebook Financial. It's run by a guy named David Marcus. We've said this again and again and again. He used to run PayPal. They are going to be unleashing a cryptocurrency called DM this year. So you talk about social commerce and some of the opportunities that they have here. You talk about three billion people on this planet who have some form of Facebook account and the ability for this company, if they get this thing regulated and it turns into a means of exchange on their platform, this is the next leg of the story. It's not copycatting you know, Snapchat or TikTok or this or that or whatever. I really do believe it's about social commerce and social currency and, and whatever they do in the crypto space. All right. Coming up, Chinese tech stocks on the fritz as investors grapple with the aftermath of the Archegos hedge fund implosion. Excuse me. So what should you do if you own some of these names? We'll bring you all the trades plus Lululemon earnings on deck for tomorrow and options traders are betting this name could be stretching into some gains. We'll break down the action when Fast Money returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. The China tech rock barreling on today as investors digest the multi-billion dollar liquidation of hedge fund Archegos, the K-Web ETF that lists Tencent, Baidu, Alibaba among its top holdings. 
falling another 1.6% today. It is now down more than 11% over the past week. Let's bring in Brendan Ahern, the chief investment officer at Crane Shares. He runs the KWeb China Internet ETF. Brendan, great to have you with us. Thank you, Melissa. It's great to be here. There are certainly a lot of forces um, potentially causing the sell-off that we've seen uh, in this. So, so what's your sense of the impact of this particular hedge fund's unraveling on the ETF? Well, we, we, we've been going through a little bit of a correction uh, after Chinese New Year. A lot of growth, cyclical uh, work-from-home stocks had a nice run-up. We were going through this little correction, and, and certainly this hedge fund liquidation concentrated in uh, Chinese ADRs as well as some U.S. names has really thrown gasoline on this correction, exacerbating the move. And we're just hoping that these folks are all flushed out and markets can resume uh, to, to getting back to normal. One of the reasons why we asked you on, Brendan, um, is is because what we've seen in the past with ETFs um, whose top holdings are seeing particular selling pressure is that the whole basket gets swept up in selling pressure, obviously. And, and I'm wondering if you have the sense that this is going on with KWeb and, and which shares you think could be the opportunities here that may not actually be getting liquidated, but are simply being liquidated because people are getting out of the ETF. Yeah, I mean, certainly we know that this uh, uh, family office hedge fund was concentrated in Badu, Tencent Music, IQ, uh, VIP Shop, and GSX. So what was interesting is we've seen these these exacerbated moves, particularly on Friday, last Wednesday. Uh, at the same time, names like JD.com, Alibaba, Tencent have held up much, much stronger. So we do think, again, that particularly over this last two weeks, maybe some of this hedge fund liquidation was taking uh, place up to two weeks ago. And this final flush on, on Friday and hopefully today gets this behind us. Hey, Brennan, it's Tim. Look, I, I'm a big, a longtime investor in that part of the world, and yeah. I, I, I'm a big believer in the Chinese Internet story. But uh, I'm very concerned about the pressures on both sides unrelated to, to a tiger yeah. cub. They, they are SEC delisting dynamics for some of the biggest Chinese Internet names. You have China cracking down on their own. First, it's Alibaba. Then it's Tencent. Uh, you've got talk of data collection and forced data collection in China. Um, does this concern you about trends for investors here? Well, I, I think on the SEC side, we've known that this was out there. We're hoping that under the Biden administration, the two regulators can come to come together, put this to bed. I mean, this isn't rocket science. Uh, so we think the delisting is, is, is something that's not going to happen in a very, very long time, three years plus out. We think there's time for a resolution on the China regulatory side. Uh, again, these are the golden gooses. These are the best companies in China. These are the companies that everyone in China wants to work for. And I just don't see them killing the golden goose at the same time, similar to what we saw in Europe with the GDPR, the privacy data three years ago, it, it, it didn't adversely affect the companies. They just had to evolve and, and uh, abide by the new rules. And we'll, we'll see that in China as well. All right, Brendan, great to speak with you. Thanks. Brendan Ahern of Crane Shares, which runs KWeb. Um, Tim, I'll go to you. Uh, clearly as the, the, well, we used to call you the ambassador once upon a time because of your international yeah, investing. I hope you still do. Uh, yeah, ambassador. But, you know, China <laughs> was not timid in, in, in sanctioning and in punishing Jack Ma. So you can make the argument yeah. that doesn't want to kill the golden goose, and yet it, it muzzled its most famous billionaire, most beloved billionaire, the man of the people. 
Well, and I'm not sure, right, who, who he's beloved by. Um, and, and certainly for a long time, it was investors. And it's, you know, we've talked about the impact of Alipay and, and, and pushing back on, you know, Ant Financial. And, and, but but I, I, I do believe that the Chinese regulator, especially on the antitrust side, uh, has a role to play that's very important for their economy. And, and that's not necessarily, uh, you know, uh, subversive. Uh, I actually think that, you know, that's not something I worry about as much. I, I am worried about a discount factor for these companies. Uh, by the way, I own Tencent Media, uh, and which has been pushed around, and, and its move was almost meteoric on the way up uh, as well. And, and this is a company that also announced on the back of the Tiger blow-up, Tiger X Tiger, I should say, uh, Cub blow-up, is, is that they were actually going to they're initiating a, a billion-dollar buyback. They're actually buying their shares. Mm -hmm. They're being opportunistic. Um, I love this story. 68% ad growth, diversified, long-form, short-form, streaming, music. I, I think it's a great story. That may be the other greatest trade out of this. And, Karen, you're citing Viacom's offering on the other side of this. You actually bought Viacom? I did. I bought some Viacom today. I mean... You know, when I always say when things start to trade down in integers at a time, there's usually something else going on. And obviously the, the very, you know, much uh, noted force selling, that's a dynamic I like. Can, I'll never be able to pick the exact bottom. But I had owned the stock on the way up and sold it at 57. It was just kicking myself every single day when it traded 100. It was practically, you know, I couldn't take it anymore. But now I can reload at sort of the same price. And they've done this great offering. So they have they've raised cash at an exceptionally good price. So I actually bought some here. I'll probably buy some more. I'm never going to pick the bottom, though. All right. Coming up, big changes could be coming to the music world thanks to the NFT boom. The Airborne Toxic event frontman, Mikel Jolet, joins us to talk about how NFTs are shaking up the industry. And don't forget to sign up for the CNBC At Work Summit. Hear from the world's most influential voices who are redefining the future of work. Register at cnbcevents.com slash work. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a trader triple play for you. Check out shares of Moderna, Boeing, and Twitter all on the move. Let's kick things off with Twitter flying high on an upgrade uh, to a buy at Truist, the firm calling it the most exciting product roadmap we have ever seen out of Twitter. Dan, you agree? I do agree with that. I think Twitter Spaces, which he did not mention, is going to be a monster for Twitter. So to me, I'm very bullish on Twitter. I have been on numerous occasions over the last year. But think about it. Look at this chart. After it's made new highs, after big ramps, it's pulled back between 20 and 40 percent four times over the last year. We're down about 20 percent. Let's see if we get this thing with a five handle back towards that uptrend. That's where I'd reload there. Guy, in a sentence I never thought I would utter on TV. Uh, you have actually used Twitter Spaces. Is that a catalyst? <laughs> Why does that surprise you? Like you say that, like you're shocked. I mean, I am, I am, I am so technologically advanced. I think people underestimate my prowess on the technology front. And I shared Dan's opinion about Twitter. He has power pitched that before. Stock went from 45 to 80 basically in a month in a straight line. So the pullback was much needed. I think he continued to earn it and own it into earnings. I think at the end of April, so bullish Twitter as well. All right, next up, shares of Boeing feeling the love today as Southwest Airlines places an order for 100737 MAX jets. Good news for Boeing, it seems, Tim. 
Great news, and, and this is the story. As airlines go on reopening the, the plane purchases, and you know, we saw this from United, we see this from Southwest, uh, it's not only the near-term orders, but then the options uh, on orders out from 2022 to 29. Uh, I think there'll be others to follow. Again, there's a lot of inventory that needs to be replaced at some point. I think you stay long bone. Karen, what do you think? I mean, this is sort of at the cross-section of uh, turnaround play as well as reopening play. Right. A turnaround play, reopening play, but the price is already reflecting a lot of optimism. I mean, I've thought the same thing about the airline trade, that a lot of great things are already priced in. And so for me, I don't own Boeing. I certainly wouldn't short it, but um, I, I feel like a lot of good things are already priced in. They need to be selling planes for the stock to stay here. Finally, shares of Moderna dropping today. Now, remember on Friday, we brought you the report right here on Fast that according to sources to CNBC, the White House is weighing removing the COVID vaccine intellectual property shield. Guy. I wasn't with you on Friday because you do the uh, that great show at 530, the options well, action, well, which I actually turned on. Well, to be honest, I, I, on, I wasn't I mean, here on Friday either, but. Anyway, come on, come on. Anyway. Glad you're watching. No, I mean, it's problematic. No, but you know, but I think there are other levers for Moderna to pull over the next couple of years. Karen brought this up six or seven months ago, how they're probably best suited to. I hate to use the term because, you know, there's obviously so much more work here, but to monetize some of the things that they've done. So although that was a bit of a uh, I mean, it's not a great headline. I think that's a headline that the market's going to look past. So I think you could probably buy Moderna again. What's so crazy is that Moderna has a pipeline of vaccines built upon the mRNA technology, which the bullish case, you know, by analysts and investors is that they can use this technology, which is proven at this point. And if the shield is removed, I, I don't know what's left if you can sort of back engineer this whole thing, Dan. Yeah, I, I, listen, I don't think that it, it would be particularly fair to do that to this company. So I think that they're probably doing it to ease some of the kind of supply constraints right now. Um, but I get the mRNA technology is the mRNA technology. Guy's been great on this name. The stock broke out at 100 back in early December, and it's traded between 190 and like the levels where it is right now. That 200-day moving average is down near 100. Um, you may want to wait for it to get back down there because it feels a bit heavy, and that would be the level to reload on the long side. All right, coming up, shares of Lululemon stuck in downward dog this year. But will tomorrow's earnings bring investors a much-needed dose of zen? We'll break down the trade. But first, will musicians finally be getting their piece of the pie? Our next guest says this could be a huge turning point for the future of music. We'll be joined by the lead singer of the Airborne Toxic event right after this break. Welcome back to Fast Money. NFTs have made a big splash in the art and music world. Artists such as Grimes, Steve Aoki, and Kings of Leon all getting into the non-fungible token world with video and record releases. And our next guest recently penned an NBC op-ed on NFTs and what he calls an entirely new frontier for the music industry. Let's bring in Mikhail Jolet, the lead singer of the Airborne Toxic event and a New York Times best-selling author for his memoir, Hollywood Park. Mikhail, great to have you with us. Oh, thanks for thanks for having me today. Uh, Mikhail, you speak our language. You say music is underpriced right now. And I'm wondering if you think NFTs are a way to remedy that solution, that the problem. Well, I think I think it's part of it. I think the main thing is that NFTs are harbingers of something else. And I think that this idea that NFTs are going to somehow be the panacea that changes music, I think is a little overinflated. Um, but it's more that they represent uh, something else. I don't think we're suddenly all going to get into the fine art business and be like Beeple and sell a record for, you know, $69 million or something. I think it's more that we're talking about a new frontier uh, with NFTs, and we're seeing the leading edge of it 
in art and music. And that new frontier is sort of, I guess you could say the internet of value, um, which is uh, functionally different from the internet of say social media, the e-commerce internet. Uh, and that is something massive. And there are a lot of applications for all kinds of IP, including you know, fine art and music and many other things, but also many other industries. Uh, and also I, I kind of feel like part of it's just, the promise of the internet was always that you could you know, disintermediate major corporations between artists and fans. That's what we were always told. And then uh, you know, at each point that the music industry has been disrupted, that, was, that wasn't true. And I think we might finally be knocking on the door of that, but perhaps not for the reason it seems everybody thinks. Yeah, the point that you make is that so many times there have been these disruptors that come on the scene and do change the mm -hmm. way things um, get done in the music industry, and yet right. it's not to the artist's advantage. advantage. Napster, LimeWire, yeah. iTunes, now Spotify. Mm -hmm. NFTs are going to be different, you think? I do. You make a good point. It's like at each point they were like, okay, it's not going to be soul-sucking anymore. We're not going to just have the corporations taking the profits anymore. That was what, you know, Napster was going to do that. The internet itself was going to do that. MP3s were going to do that. iTunes was going to do that. Spotify was going to do that. And then at each point, they just found like a new way for it to be sort of soul-sucking for artists and to put corporations uh, in, in the driver's seat of profits in the industry, which famously go, I think something like 88% of profits in the industry go to corporations, not to artists. And, you know, so it's, it's like creative ways of taking advantage of starving artists who are sort of expected to be to continue to starve. So, Mikkel, you know, obviously you just made the case how, um, you know, technology, the Internet in particular, has not made it easier for artists. But, you know, with COVID now, um, all of a sudden, you know, you guys were making a lot of money touring. It was one area where right. you could actually kind of flex a little bit. How do you think about NFTs kind of disrupting that part of the music industry when we get back to touring, which is going to come probably pretty soon this summer? It's a great concrete example of why ownership matters and why smart contracts and things in this sort of internet of value matter. So right now, if you're a band that goes on tour and you sell out a venue that's got a thousand seats, right? Then what happens is once it's sold out, a bunch of people go on StubHub um, and they take some of those seats, maybe they're the front row seats, maybe they're the best seats, and they put them on sale for, let's say three times. Let's say you sold it for 50 bucks and they put them on StubHub for 300 bucks. Right now, all that value is going to StubHub and it's going to the scalper and none of it's going back to the artist. If you made the ticket itself a token, if you tokenized it, you put it on the blockchain, you encrypted it, and let's say you just made it a QR code, you can build into it something called a smart contract. So every time it's sold, you can set what percentage goes back to the originator of the contract. In this case, it would be the band. So I could say, uh, you know, and people did this, say, with his art contracts, he made it 10%. Every time it resells, you get 10%. With a ticket, you could say 80%. You could say 60%. And so they say, fine, I'm going to take it. I'm going to put it on StubHub for 300 bucks. Great. That's the, then StubHub gets some money and the, art, and the scalper gets some money. But in this instance, then now that artist gets 60% of that inflated value of that ticket. Whereas right now, he doesn't get any of it. Yeah. Injustice there, for sure. Mikhail, thanks so much for joining us. We hope you'll come back. Yeah, thanks for having me. Mikhail Jolet. Um, so we got music lovers, we got music makers on this panel. Tim, I'll go to you on, on what you think NFTs could mean. Well, Mikhail's right. I mean, the value that music plays in our life and, and, and what it does and how it changes our life is worth a lot more than pennies uh, per streaming. And that, you know, the, the biggest artists who are, you know, 1% are the ones that get 80% of these flows um, or more. So, um, look, I, I like the fact that you're creating unique experiences also and that you're creating uh, something that's unique. Look, music fans are also collectors. 
uh, and I think they're willing to give a lot more back to the band to have that kind of a what feels like an intimate personal co connection. I, I love the ticket idea. Like I, I hate the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting whacked at StubHub, and I know someone on the other side is also getting whacked, and no one else is seeing it but them. So there's a much to be improved. The, the disservice charges that you get tacked on by every ticket agency, and we know who they are, um, it's just not fair. And so fans and artists alike want to see this change. Um, just quickly, Karen, you're an investor in Live Nation. Good or bad? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know. I was thinking about that. You know, when he's talking about going on tour, can, they, can Live Nation help their artists sort of chop up parts of their concert and make NFTs out of them and sell them to, you know, the highest bidder. And could that be an additional revenue stream that is nowhere in, in Live Nation's model? What is in Live Nation's model is Ticketmaster. And to the extent that the dynamic that Tim talked about is decreased, that's not good for Live Nation. Coming up, options traders are betting that shares of Lululemon could stretch higher here after earnings. We'll break down the trade for you. Much more Fast Money in two. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is talking exclusively with the CEO of Insego. Catch that full interview at the top of the hour on Mad Money. Let's turn now to the first big earnings report of the week. Lululemon reports tomorrow after the bell. The athleisure company off to an uncharacteristically rough start to the year, but the options markets betting tomorrow's results can kick off a turnaround. Let's bring in Mike Coe with more on what to expect. Mike. Yeah, so taking a look at Lululemon, right now the options market is implying a move of about $20 higher or lower by the shortened holiday end of the week here. That represents about a move of about 6.35% of the current stock price. That's in line with the 6.5% that the stock has averaged over the last eight quarters. And the most active options were calls, and most of those were short-dated in nature, ending uh, on Thursday of this week, the 340, 350, and 380 strike calls. The 340s, by way of example, were trading for about $3. So buyers of those calls are actually expecting an upside move of greater than the 6.35% that the options market is implying, since the stock would need to rise at least 8% for those calls to be profitable. Uh, Guy, your quick take on Lulu. It's interesting. And go back to September. The stock went from three ninety nine ninety, basically four hundred dollars, down to two eighty five in like a month. It's pretty remarkable. That two eighty five level is huge support. Um, I think it's sold off enough to take a look at it. But you know what? The right thing to do is probably wait and see what they say and buy or sell it after earnings. All right. Thanks, Mike, for that. Mike Coe for more options action. Be sure to tune into the full show next Friday. Not this Friday because we're off. Next Friday, five thirty p.m. Eastern time. Up next, final trades. It's time for the final trade. Around the horn we go. Tim. Yeah, let's talk about music. Let's talk about streaming. Let's talk about hedge fund blowups. Tencent Music. The fundamentals for this company are extraordinary. They're growing 5 million subs a month. Stay there. Karen. Yeah, Viacom. Crazy ride up, crazy ride down, right back where we were. And now Paramount Plus. I'm long. Buy it right here. Dan. Hey, check out Mikkel's memoir also, Hollywood Park. And I would also say for Tim's Chinese internet, check out the FXI bouncing off of 45 bucks. Guy. Check out that stealth move in Lockheed Martin, Mel. Mm, will do. <laughs> Thanks for watching Fast. We'll see you back here tomorrow <laughs> at 5 for more. Matt and Monty with Jim Cramer starts now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. 
like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.